So what if? So what if? Now, I'm convinced that a lot of fictional stories, a lot of fairy tales we, we hear, or at least some of the details, are based in real life. I'm also convinced that a lot of fairy tales or fictional stories, again, at least in some of the details, may at least be based in part on stories from the Bible. Hold that thought just for a second. For the last couple of weeks, we have been involved in a series I hope has been encouraging to you. We've entitled that series, Be Our Guest. And we've been thinking about, as the subtitle of this series is, we've been thinking about how to move people from fearful to faithful. And two weeks ago, we began this series thinking about killing the beast of fear and how we play a role in helping people overcome that fear that is very real of, uh, of coming to a church building, of, uh, of understanding things about Jesus, of studying the Bible. They have some work in that, but we do as well by talking up Jesus and talking up His church and encouraging them in that. Then last week, we spent some time thinking about breaking the cycle. We, we called that lesson, Thank You. Because in the story of Beauty and the Beast, you remember it was just that one phrase, thank you, that really began to, to change the whole picture. And we talked about how there are so many preconceived ideas that people have about church, about Jesus, about Christians, and, and how we play a role in helping them break those preconceived ideas, but also how they must have a willing heart to listen. We used the story of Nathaniel in John chapter 1 last week to think about how he was given a kind invitation how Jesus gave him a very sincere compliment, but how Nathaniel also had that willing heart to actually come and listen to what Jesus had to say and to meet him. But what if? You see, all of those things are leading to something. Well, we're not just thinking about those two ideas, breaking the, or killing the beast of fear and breaking the cycle of preconceived ideas just, just to have something to talk about for a couple of weeks. All of those things lead to one of the most exciting questions I could ever ask. What if? What if someone decides to come and see? What if someone finally decides to become a Christian? What if someone who is a Christian but who has been unfaithful for a while, what if they decide it's time to return to faithfulness? What if? What are we supposed to play? What role are we supposed to play in when that happens? Do you remember the scene in the movie, the play, Beauty and the Beast? We've been using that as the background for for all of this. It's a scene that actually has served as our title for this whole series, where they they sing that song, Be Our Guest. You're in that scene where everything just goes over the top, right? I mean, you've got forks dancing. You've got salt shakers jumping up and down. You've got plates flying through an air, through the air, not in a scary way, in a a very welcoming way. It's kind of weird, but you know, everything just seems to be over the top. Everything is so exciting. And we've been using that, that picture as sort of the background for this whole thing. It is a celebration. I've sometimes wondered if that scene, or at least the concept behind that scene, is not at least in part sort of in its idea or its its philosophical thinking, I've wondered before if it's not at least in part based upon when the prodigal son returns home. Because do you remember in Luke chapter 15, you don't have to turn there yet, we're going to come back to it in a little while, but do you remember in Luke chapter 15 when that prodigal son returns home, the father does not just say, oh, there he is. 
No, I'm paraphrasing big time. But the father basically says, it's time for a celebration. Kill the fatted calf, put a robe on him, put the ring on his finger. My son is back. It's time to have a celebration here. And it becomes, in many ways, the best celebration that that village had ever seen. This morning, I want us to conclude our series, Be Our Guest, by looking at someone else who came home. Though the circumstances were slightly different. And I want us to think about how we need to be welcoming when someone decides to move from fearful to faithful. I want you to turn back in your Bibles, if you will, to that little short book we read from a little while ago, the book of Philemon. If you find the book of Hebrews, it's on the page right before it. It's only 25 verses in length. I really want you to turn to this passage because I want to point out a few things as we go through the lesson this morning. And while you're turning to that very short 25-verse book, I want to, to point out that there are three principal individuals in this book. And that will help set the stage for us. First, there's Paul, of course, the writer of this letter. It's the shortest letter we have from him in our New Testament. But when Paul writes this particular letter, he is in prison in the city of Rome. And that plays a role in what we're going to talk about this morning. The second principal character is Philemon himself, the one to whom the letter is addressed. Philemon, it seems, is a man of some wealth, some means. He at least has a large enough household to have at least some servants. But Philemon also is a Christian. Philemon probably lives in Colossae or very near there. I'll put a map of that up in just a couple of minutes where that is. The third principal individual is a man named Onesimus. I believe you see him mentioned by name for the first time in verse 10. Verse 9, by the way, is where we're told that Paul is in prison. But in verse 10, we're introduced to this guy named Onesimus. Onesimus was a runaway slave of Philemon's. And somehow, Onesimus had found his way, as, as a runaway, all the way to Rome. And remember, Paul is in Rome. But Paul is in prison, or we might better call it house arrest, in Rome. And Onesimus somehow had come to meet Paul there in Rome. Scholars have no idea why. Some have suggested maybe maybe Onesimus had been caught and thrown in some type of prison for being a runaway slave. Some have suggested that maybe on his runaway he had done some criminal act and now was put in prison. But we, we don't know. But for some reason, Onesimus meets up with Paul. And if you meet up with Paul, you're going to hear about Jesus. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your background. Paul is going to talk to you about Jesus. In fact, you may remember at the end of the book of Acts, we're even told that Paul was preaching to people who were his guards in prison. How would you like to be the guard who had to stand for six or eight hours in Paul's cell if you didn't want to hear about Jesus? Have fun with that, because that's all you were going to hear about for six or eight hours. And here comes Onesimus as a runaway slave, he meets up with Paul, and Paul is going to tell him about Jesus. And Paul is going to tell him about Jesus over and over and over again. That's the background. That's where we are. But by the grace of God, and by a good and honest heart, Onesimus does more than just hear about Jesus. Onesimus accepts the invitation. Onesimus becomes a Christian. But there is a bump in the road here, isn't there? Because Onesimus is a runaway slave. He is breaking the law of the time. Now, we could go on all day and all night about about that particular society and what that means. We are dealing with a different culture and a different time. 
And Paul has to tell Onesimus, you need to return home. Practically speaking, you need to return home and make this right. But something has changed now. Because Onesimus is a Christian. And so Paul, in writing to Philemon, the homeowner as well as the owner of Onesimus, uses a very clever play on words, by the way. Down in verse 11. If you notice verse 11 of the text, it says, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Now, I don't know what Paul means, specifically, when he says that formerly Onesimus had been useless. I don't know if that means that he was just one among a whole bunch of, uh, of servants or slaves that Philemon owned, and so he was just kind of a number. I don't know if it means that Onesimus was lazy and didn't really do anything. I don't know. But Paul uses a clever play on words when he calls him useful now. Some of you have a footnote in your Bible that explains that. Because the name of this runaway slave, Onesimus, literally means useful. What Paul basically said in verse 11 is this. Formerly, he wasn't really Onesimus. Now he's Onesimus. He's useful. What made the change? He became a Christian. And so when Onesimus returned home, he was going to be truly useful. Because that's the way Christians are. They work hard. They are family. Everything should be right about this situation. Now, I want to think just for a moment about the humanness of all of this. And by the way, you may have noticed this morning, there's, there's no handout this morning because this is not one of those three points in a poem sermon. Okay? This was, this was unoutlinable. Okay? Even my notes are a mess. This could be a lot of fun this morning. Okay? I'll, I'll just tell you. But I want you to think about the human nature of all this for a second. Remember where I said they were. I hope you can see at least the stars on this map, okay? On the left-hand side, the star is over Rome. That's where Paul is, and that's where Onesimus has gone to and become a Christian. The star on the right-hand side, just a little over halfway across, is Colossae in Asia Minor. That's where Philemon lives, at least there or near there. It's a handful of miles. It's several hundred miles. Now think about the humanness of all this. You are in, for example, Onesimus' shoes. You have become a Christian. And Paul says, you need to go back home and make this right. <laughs> you know what Bible story would suddenly become my favorite if I was Onesimus? Jonah chapter 1. Because Jonah figured out a way to go exactly in the wrong direction from where he was supposed to go. And nobody really would have figured it out if God had not miraculously intervened. Onesimus could have simply said, I'm going to leave this prison cell walking that way, but as soon as I get to the first corner, I'm going the other way. I've heard my dad use this illustration before, so if dad listens later, sorry for stealing it, dad. But some of you may, and I'm not saying I know this by personal experience or anything, but some of you at some time may have been called the principal's office in school, and I don't know what that's like, but some of you may have. And did you ever have the thought when you were walking down the hallway of just how many outside doors there were between your classroom and the principal's office, and just how easy it might have been to just happen to go out one of those doors and maybe, you know, go to another state, and nobody would have known? That's a very modern picture here of what Onesimus had to be thinking. It is hundreds of miles. And we don't know if he would have gone over land. We don't know if he would have gone across the seas. He could have very easily just said, you know what, let's go the other way. 
Put yourself in the shoes of Philemon. This is a runaway slave. He has broken the law. He's also broken, if there was any trust level, that's gone. And now he receives this letter from a man he knows. He knows Paul. That becomes very apparent throughout this short letter. That basically says, you welcome him back. But you do more than just welcome him back. The laws of the time, by the way, basically said that Philemon could have done anything to this runaway slave. He could have had him banished. He could have thrown him in jail. And yes, by the laws of the time, he could have had him killed for being a runaway slave. That was perfectly acceptable under the laws of that time. But look at how very personal and how very carefully Paul words his appeal to this man. Notice in Philemon what he says in verses 15 and 16. He says, for this, the this being the fact that Onesimus has become a Christian, for this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Do you see it? Philemon, you can have him back. But now you have him back forever. That doesn't mean he has to be a slave forever. But it means there is something now that ties Philemon and ties Onesimus together eternally. There is something now that connects them in a way they had never been connected before. They have an eternal connection. And then Paul writes those words that I love so much. Philemon, you take Onesimus back as more than a slave. You take him back as a beloved brother. A brother. And in verse 17, Paul helps put this in even more perspective. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. What is Paul saying? Paul is basically saying that when Onesimus comes home, Philemon, you say, welcome home. Now think about this just for a second. Paul then says, you welcome him like you would welcome me. They they know each other. Paul and Philemon know each other. What would you do if you got a letter from someone who's an old friend, but maybe someone who had made in life in a way that made them somewhat famous, somewhat highly influential, and you got a letter or an email or a text them saying, hey, I'm coming to your house in about a week, and if you don't mind, I'm going to stay about four or five days. Most of us probably would not wait until five minutes before they were supposed to show up to start cleaning, right? Most of us would roll out the red carpet. We would do more than the once-over. We would do whatever we could, not just because this person is famous, but because we love them and because we want them to truly feel welcome and honored in our home. We, we, we would make sure the house was clean. We'd make sure there were clean sheets on the bed. We might even go to the extra expense of putting some snacks in the room or maybe some flour. We would go over the top. Because we want that person to feel at home. That's exactly what Paul is telling Philemon to do, not just for Paul, but for a runaway slave. Does that make sense to anybody else? 
If we were looking at this in any way other than through Christian eyes, this makes zero sense. Nothing about this makes any sense whatsoever if we do not understand what Paul is trying to place in the minds of Philemon. Now think about this. Onesimus is a runaway slave. On top of that, he's a runaway slave from Philemon himself. He is a lawbreaker in doing that. And he deserved at least admonishment, if not even death. He probably brought some level of shame on Philemon's household because Philemon couldn't control these things and his slave just ran away. All those things are true, probably. But something something changed. Onesimus is now a brother in Christ. Yes, his role or his place as a slave or as a servant may still be the same or it may not. But Paul was essentially saying that Philemon needed to roll out the red carpet for this runaway just as he would have if Paul himself were coming for an extended visit. But even more than that, Paul is really making an even more powerful statement. Notice again what he said in verse 16. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. There are two things in my mind that are interesting about that word beloved. One, very briefly, is that it's a form of the word agape. That kind of love that's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient and kind and all those things. It's a form of that word. But it's the form of the word that makes it interesting. Now, I don't want to get too technical here, but it's one of those things that's fascinating when you think about it. What Paul basically says when he uses the word that's translated beloved is Philemon, because of what has happened, it is assumed that you will love him. That's behind that word. This is not written just as a command. Paul is saying, yes, it's a command. Receive him, not as a slave, but as a beloved brother. But it's worded in such a way that says, I'm commanding you and assuming it will be done. I'm assuming you love it. Why? Well, to quote the old song, for the slave is now our brother. A beloved brother. Folks, how powerful is that? How earth-changing is that? Here's where I want to think about some comparisons, some parallels, if you please, between that prodigal son of Luke 15 and this account of Onesimus in the short book of Philemon. You remember in Jesus' parable in Luke 15, when the prodigal came near, the father ran out to greet him. He didn't berate him. He didn't start questioning everything the prodigal had done. He called for a celebration. We already talked about that a few minutes ago. But there's something embedded in that story in Luke 15 that always stands out to me. Do you remember the little speech that the prodigal memorizes before he comes home? Luke 15, 17 tells us that the prodigal came to himself and decided to come home. And I don't know if this is true or not. I picture it this way. He has this little memorized speech. And I... I I picture him sort of saying it over and over and over again as he travels home. Father, I've sinned against heaven in your your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Maybe he's one of your hired servants. And I can picture him saying that speech constantly, making sure it's exactly right, because probably in his mind, he's thinking, I'm going to have to come crawling back to the Father. I'm going to have to just come groveling just to get a place of a servant. But what I love about that story, besides a lot of other things, one of my favorite things about that story is he never finishes his speech. Have you ever noticed that? 
When he comes to the Father, the Father runs out to meet him, and there's hugging, and there's embracing, and there's weeping, and somehow the prodigal composes himself enough to start his little speech. Father, I have sinned in heaven, against heaven, in your eyes. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. End of speech. End of speech. He doesn't finish it. The son saying, I'm not worthy to be called your son, is all it took. He didn't have to finish the speech. Why? He was the son. It didn't matter what had happened. It mattered. I mean, he shouldn't have done what he did, but now that he had made the step to come back, none of that mattered to the father. He was worthy to be called a son. And remember that when the father is talking to the older son and they throw this celebration, he he goes out and what does he say in verse 24? My son who was dead is alive. He has been lost but has been found. He doesn't say that brother of yours. He doesn't say that prodigal over there. He doesn't say that good for nothing. My son Father, I'm no longer worthy called your son. You are my son. Now compare that with what Paul was telling Philemon about a runaway slave. Onesimus is not a Christian when he left. He's just another slave. We don't know how many servants Philemon had. Maybe he's the only one. Maybe he's just one among many. We don't know. He's a criminal. But something changed. That runaway slave heard about Jesus and believed in what Philemon himself believed. Because there is no slave and there is no free in Jesus, both Philemon as the head of the household and Onesimus as the slave were simply Christians. And so Paul writes to Philemon, you welcome him back as you would part of the family. Because that's exactly what he is now. He is a brother. He deserves. He deserves to be treated as a brother. Someone out there has killed the beast of fear. They've heard a Christian talk up Jesus. They've heard a Christian talk up the church. They've been encouraged by a Christian who is filled with love for the Lord. And a love for lost souls. They've been encouraged by one who's willing to speak out to them and encourage them when they're down or teach them something from Scripture that they need to know. The cycle has been broken because of a willing heart to to invite someone who's willing to to build a bridge and say, "This this is what you're doing right, but we're going to build a bridge and make sure we're doing everything right. And they have a heart willing to come and willing to listen and to consider the message of Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, it's someone who, like Onesimus, has never followed Jesus before, but now they're ready. Now they know who Jesus is. Now they know they stand in need of His saving power. They've overcome that fear. They've come to learn about Him. The Lord, finally, after they are converted through baptism, the Lord adds them to His church. They are ready to be part of His church, and they are. Or, maybe it's someone like the prodigal, who's followed for a while, but has been away. 
They may have even done some things that you shake your head at. But they, like the prodigal, have come to themselves. They've humbled themselves enough to come back. They know their need of being one with Jesus again. And one who walks with Him. And being part of the church. They've overcome their fear. They've actually returned to a church building. They've overcome fear even more. And maybe they've even walked down an aisle to ask for prayers. How can we help move that person from that point to true and deep faith? We might say mature faith. They have already done so much. And the Lord obviously has done His part. His part is perfect. How can we make certain that person moves to a place of faithfulness? Welcome them home. That's how it's done. The prodigal was not a hired servant. He was a son. Onesimus was no longer just a runaway slave. He was a beloved brother. That person is no longer just that person. They're no longer just someone out there. They're no longer someone who just lives in our community. They're no longer just some sinner. They're no longer just some prodigal. They are family. And they deserve to be welcomed home. When you first bring a baby home from the hospital, how do you treat that baby? Do you just bring that baby home? Maybe set, set the baby in a crib and just walk away? Uh, they're born. They're fine. They'll figure it out. I mean, I mean, kids grow, right? No, they'll be fine. That's just silly even to think about. Of course you don't. You, you love that baby. You meet the child's needs. You feed him when he needs fed. You teach her what you think she needs to know. When they're hurting, you do what you can to alleviate that pain. You hug on them and you make sure they're loved over and over and over again. When someone becomes a Christian or when a prodigal returns, they are part of the family and we need to welcome that person home. It starts. It starts when someone responds. One of the things that fills me with more joy than you can imagine is when someone responds and someone else comes to sit by them. Have you noticed that happening lately? It's not that someone else is responding, but this is difficult to come down here and sit. And maybe Tyler or one of the others, maybe we sit with them too, but I mean, there's still 200 and something people back here singing a song for, you know, for a couple of minutes. It's difficult. And have someone else come and sit and put an arm around them or just, just sit beside them or sometimes hand them a tissue or whatever's needed in the moment. That means something. And then when the services are done, do you just walk out the back door? Is it, well, people have come for before. I'll get to them later. I, I love, if you've noticed, a lot of times I stand right here and kind of lean back against this little half wall because there are a few things that fill me with more joy than seeing this well down. We need like traffic directors. It's fantastic. That it just fills with people coming down to to give hugs, to say congratulations, to say I love you, to say that I'm going to help you, I'm going to walk it. That's where it starts. But it doesn't end there. It continues with teaching. It continues with encouraging. That person is still in need of the milk of the Word of God to grow and mature in his or her faith. They're still going to lose some battles to temptation. And we need to be there to help them fight and to grow. 
They're still going to have some old habits and some old relationships that are going to die hard, but we're going to stand there with them and help them. We're going to support them in every way we possibly can. But we're going to give that to them. No matter who they are, and no matter what they've done. Because they're part of the family. Whether they're rich or poor, to use the biblical term, slave or free, whether female or male, whether they're religiously ignorant or a Bible-quoting New Testament Christian, whether they are a new Christian or returning prodigal, whether they look like me or whether they don't look like me, that's not any longer what defines that person. What defines that person is what defines every Christian. He or she is now saved by the precious blood of Jesus And that person is part of the family. And I had better welcome that person home and I better treat that person as the most, as a piece of, a part of the most precious family this world has ever known because that's exactly who they are. It started with a big, dark, scary, imposing castle. But by the end of the fairy tale, It's home. For a whole lot of people, even where you and I live, even in small town, southern, Bible Belt America, religion and Christianity and Jesus, those things are are dark and scary things. But when we do our part to help people overcome those fears, over time, the Lord's church becomes just what it was designed to be. It is becomes home. We're part of the family that's been born again. Part of the family whose love knows no end. For Jesus has saved us and made us His own. Now we're part of the family that's on its way home. And sometimes we laugh together. And sometimes we cry. Sometimes we share together heartaches and sighs. Sometimes we dream together of how it will be when we all get to heaven. God's family. You've killed the beast of fear. The cycle has been broken. It's time to come home. There are people in this room who we love dearly, who for some reason have never put Christ on in baptism. They're good people. They're wonderful people. We love them. But they're outside of Christ because it's in the blood of Christ that you contact in baptism. That's where the Lord adds you to His church. It's time to come home. There are other people in this room who are Christians, but along the way, you've kind of been faithful, you haven't kind of been faithful, maybe you haven't been faithful, and you've overcome the fear. You've come here. It's time to come home. It's time to move from fearful to faithful. You see, in reality... 
It's time to be more than a guest. It's time to come to the family reunion. And your invitation isn't in the mail. Your invitation was sent when Jesus died on the cross. And he sealed it when he overcame death three days later. It's time to come home. And that time is now while we stand and sing to encourage you.